I should say a little bit about this paper. This is a paper that has a slightly strange history. It was submitted to American anthropologists and it was accepted. I thought, fantastic, that's it. And then it said, yes, just make a few changes following the reviewer's comments. And I thought, oh, straightforward. And the reviewer's comments were, no, that's great, but could you use different ethnography and different bodies of theory and address this other point? So I sort of took it all back apart again, and it's now sort of metaphorically speaking lying on the floor in pieces. Um, so what, I mean, I had the choice between giving you, in a sense, the completely finalized version that I submitted to them, or giving you a version that's sort of an attempt to reconstruct it as I really would like it to be. And this is what this is. Um, the downside of that, I mean, the upside of that is hopefully it'll be slightly more exciting. The downside of it is it'll be slightly more ungoverned. Um, and there's two particular apologies I'm going to make before I even start. The first is that because they've asked me to address a million different theoretical issues, I'm sort of slightly trying to do that. So it's got a long theoretical introduction, and I, I'm going to try and keep it as short as I can, but I, I apologize for that in advance, so before we get to the actual ethnography. And the second one is that the end is still in process. So when I get to the end, I'll say, well, this is how I think it might conclude. And I really would welcome any criticism, constructive or destructive, um, any suggestions of other things to look at, any, and particularly any suggestions of anything I need to leave out, because it's too long. So with that, um, intro. It starts with a vignette called Doubtful Relations. September 2009. As the mid-morning heat sits, sets in, I'm walking with Marie, a volunteer at the Kalahari Meerkat Project, through dry Kalahari scrub, while all around us a band of meerkats are getting on with their foraging routine. The soundscape is unmistakable. The position calls of adult meerkats provide a background of steady beeps against which the more high-pitched begging calls of the young pups stand out. Marie points out one particular sound. After a while, I managed to pick it out, discreet but steady, beating time for the whole group. This is the regular chirping of the guard, the meerkat who has taken his turn to stand in the iconic posture, propped up on two legs. Do I have him? There he is. Propped up on two legs and a tail, keeping watch for predators as the others forage. Marie points to a small upright figure. That's Ningaloo, she says. He's so good, she adds fondly, always guarding. How does he ever manage to put on weight, she wonders. Marie then tells me she really likes the chirping guard sound. It's somehow reassuring. As long as the guard is chirping, all is well. Meerkat's acute sensorium keeps a healthy distance between us and some of the Kalahari inhabitants we don't want to tangle with, such as Cape Cobras, for instance, or Puff Adders. We, in the meantime, provide reciprocal benefits as umbrellas, for instance, <laughs> or in some cases, as guarding posts. And I should say, this is a kind of photo that happened that sort of is taken by everyone who goes to the Kalahari as a volunteer, um, and it's some, it's, you know, if, you, if you know any of them, for instance, that mostly they have that as their photo on Facebook. It's the photo with the meerkat. It's, kind of, it's like a rite of passage. And you'll see in a moment why it's actually quite an interestingly problematic thing to, to be doing for them. Like other volunteers in the KMP, and indeed arguably like most English language speakers most of the time, Marie cursorily refers to the animals she works with as persons with a perspective. And yet occasionally this language of the life world, which is what Eileen Christ calls it, is interrupted and challenged in a very different register. Earlier that day, as we sat by the burrow in the crisp and misty dawn, waiting for the meerkats to emerge, Marie told me in hushed tones that I should be very quiet. This is one of the project's most habituated groups, but all the meerkats are skittish in the morning. They're worried about what might be outside, she explains. And then she catches herself and rephrases. 
they have a heightened response to stimuli. I query her on this, why the change in language? And she says, well, that's what they taught us at uni, to beware of making these kinds of assumptions. Making assumptions about animals' mental states is wrong, since we can't know what the animals think. This is anthropomorphism, she explains. By contrast, talk of stimuli and response is more scientific. It keeps things causal, and she emphasizes the word causal. Of course, she admits, volunteers at the research station, like people everywhere, speak anthropomorphically all the time, but they know they shouldn't, and they control for it. Such self-policing was an equally common occurrence at another field site I have begun to investigate in parallel to the Kalahari Meerkat project, namely the Comparative Cognition Lab in Madeley near Cambridge, where scientists study, amongst other things, the cognitive abilities of corvids, corvids being uh, the rook, the crow family, so jackdaws, rooks, jays, etc. There, too, the commonplace language of intentionality was frequently interrupted by references to an underlying scepticism. And I should say, incidentally, that I've shown a draft of this paper to both to scientists in both places now. It's partly building also on their comments on it, just in case you're wondering. This article attempts an ethnography of scientific skepticism about animal mind. There is already an abundant literature which engages in philosophical, epistemological, or ethical discussion of such skepticism. Scientific skepticism about animal minds has been celebrated, it has been denounced, it has been deconstructed, it has been propounded as just straightforwardly good method. But we have as yet no thoroughgoing ethnographic exploration, from a social anthropological point of view, of what skepticism about animal minds might look like in practice for the scientists who profess to live by it. This ethnographic gap is interesting because I think it is diagnostic of a set of features of contemporary work on non-human animals in anthropology and in cognate disciplines. Indeed, there are two broad literatures, and this is where I, my apology comes into, into force. This is where I'm getting theoretical for what will feel like an age, and I apologize. Um, there's two broad literatures which I have in mind here. Um, and the, these literatures are the ones to which anthropologists might think to look for an ethnographic account of scientific skepticism. And yet, I think in neither of them would anthropologists be entirely satisfied with what they find. And these are the literatures, if you like, to which the article or the paper, in this case, is, if, is trying to contribute. The first literature I have in mind is that associated with recent work in the ontological turn. You've probably heard the phrase. This is work associated with Philippe Descola and Eduardo Viveros de Castro, um, and it's internally very multiple. Um, much of this work has been concerned precisely with relations between humans and non-humans in non-Western contexts. So um, animist ontologies, perspectivist ontologies, shamanist ontologies, etc., now, these arguments are extremely complex, very internally diverse, and I'm not going to go into them here, but what they share is that they are characterized by a fundamental contrast between these non-Western ontologies and a Western ontology, our ontology, which is characterized by these authors as naturalism, or sometimes mono-naturalism. According to these authors, in our naturalist ontology, animals are recognized as having similar types of bodies to us, bodies or exterior envelopes or biological natures, or however you want to define it, but humans are set apart from other animals and from each other by their minds, their interiorities, or their cultures. That's the definition of naturalism in this, in this theoretical, incredibly simplified theoretical school. This could be seen as an interesting starting point for examining issues of scientific skepticism. <coughs> However, anthropologists associated with the ontological turn have, in the main, with a, few, with a few exceptions, not focused ethnographically on instances of this purported naturalist ontology, Naturalism is treated by some as a conceptual scheme of which we are all well aware. So, for instance, Philippe Descola writes at one point, and this is in um, 
his book in French, which hasn't been translated, Par de la Nature et Culture, he says, as for the general principles of our shared cosmology, the problem is not a lack of information which we must fill, as I have done in the case of animism or totemism, but rather an overabundant knowledge which must be purified in order to recover its main traits. So his point is, I don't need to give you all this ethnography of what naturalists are like. We all know that. That's us, right? I just need to give you the main lines and sort of simplify it down. In other aspects of this literature, the reason why there is no ethnography of naturalism is rather more sophist theoretically sophisticated, if you like, and it's more about building naturalism up as a heuristic against which to compare. So particularly in the work of Viveris de Castro, but also Marilyn Strathern, and all the way back in some ways to the work of Roy Wagner, there's an argument that um, characterizations of what we are like, what the West is like, what your Americans are like, are really only internal argumentative moves. So they're not, they shouldn't be taken to be representative of actual everyone in the West, etc. So these are two very different kinds of moves, but either way, the literature doesn't really focus in ethnographically on what naturalists might be like. So is he a naturalist? Is he a typical naturalist? Is he something else? What's going on here? In fact, one might be forgiven for saying that this literature occasionally gives a sort of puts across a rather blanket characterization of Westerners' relations to non-human animals as, broadly speaking, Cartesian, dualist, objectivist, etc. I won't bore you with characteristic examples, but I'm sure you can all, you can all think of some. I can give you some later if you're, if you're interested. In this view, there is nothing much to explain about scientific skepticism. In fact, there is not really any skepticism involved at all, but simply a negation. Animals are mechanisms, therefore they have no interiority, therefore there is no question to be asked. So on one level, the paper seeks to refine such accounts ethnographically by showing that even in the purported stronghold of what Scott calls, quote, Western science inured by Cartesian metaphors of mechanical nature, end quote. So even there, <clears throat> as it were, skepticism about, about animal minds operates in a rather more multiple, ambivalent, and complex way than the above characterizations suggest. But this modest ethnographic aim, showing that science is complex, that's not particularly new and exciting, this modest ethnographic aim actually grounds a more critical point in relation to the ontology literature. As I will argue in the conclusion of this paper, starting from ontology implies that people live in a world whose categories and distinctions are already in some sense given. And this approach forecloses the very question of skepticism as a lived experience, or indeed of belief as a lived experience. I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. This being said, there are, of course, anthropologists and others who have studied human-animal relations in Western contexts ethnographically, and indeed who have studied science and human-animal relations in science ethnographically. Yet in this second literature also, scientific skepticism is somewhat elided and certainly not very visible as an ethnographic subject or object, although I think for different reasons. In the main, anthropologists and others studying human-animal relations in contemporary Europe or America have often seemed to suggest that we, in fact, have never been naturalists. And the form of the, of the phrase here comes from Bruno Latour, we have never been modern. Right? So ethnographic accounts of self-described Western practices have tended to focus rather on the many ways in which the purported canons of Cartesian dualism are perpetually transgressed in the context of pet keeping, of gardening, or indeed even in scientific research itself. And I'm thinking here of the work of people like uh, Milton, uh, Catherine Degnan, who talks brilliantly about the way people interact with their plants, um, Vinciane Desprez, who has written a couple of books on scientists interacting with animals in meaningful intersubjective ways, or indeed Donna Haraway, very famously has written about that vein. 
It is as though, in the, words of, in the words of Tim Ingold, quote, once we get to know people well, even the inhabitants of nominally Western countries, not one of them turns out to be a full-blooded Westerner, end quote. Right. So something strange is happening there. Right? In a sense, it's kind of like, the Cartesian is always in the next village. You sort of go, well, no, wait, my guys aren't Cartesians, but over there there's these scientists, they're awful. You go to the scientists, go, well, my scientists are actually really nice, but over there there's these horrible scientists. So it's kind of constantly a deferral of this ont- sort of naturalist slash Cartesian slash dualist ontology thing. So it never emerges as an ethnographic object that you'd actually look at. In other words, in the interdisciplinary animal studies literature, scientific skepticism about animal minds has not presented itself as a ready topic for ethnography, because it is often seen as a principle which no one who actually interacts with animals could truly live by. What Eileen Christ calls, quote, the, ine- the inexorable, the inexorable, I never know how to say this name, the inexorable existential palpability of the subjectivity of other humans makes philosophical solipsism, quote, absurd enough not to merit serious attention, right? So the point is, well, here it is. Of course you've got minds, I'm talking to you. What, what about, you know, how solipsism is nonsense? And then this point becomes, gets extended to non-humans in these types of arguments. And anthropologists and others who are studying human-animal relations have argued, I think very convincingly, that the daily evidence of people's ability to engage in complex, successful interactions with animals directly challenges any kind of species solipsism. <laughs> And this, for one example amongst many, Eduardo Cohn says, quote, the belief that we can know the intentions, goals, and desires of other selves allows us to act in this world, end quote. So if we were strict behaviorists, we wouldn't actually be able to, we wouldn't be able to walk around and interact with animals. So therefore, scientists who work with animals and yet claim not to know animal minds, in the example of my opening vignette, are thus rather like Melanesians who claim that other human, that other human minds are unknowable. As Joel Robbins puts it in the, in, in, in the Melanesian case, he says, quote, our colleagues find it impossible to believe that people, even if they make such statements, might in any sense live by them. And so we've got a similar kind of problem. So as a result, scientist statements about the opacity of animal minds are quite frequently denounced as part of an ideological ploy to distance animals from humans, to misrecognize the real intersubjectivity which obtains between us and animals, so that, for instance, I'm quoting Milton here, so that, quote, we can use them in many ways without being impeded by moral sensibilities. We can experiment on them, eat them, and use them for entertainment and exploit them in countless other ways that industrial economies sanctioned by Cartesian science have devised, end quote. So this is a kind of ideology critique version of this, of this point. And of course, these critiques then pick up on a rather crucial and obvious point, which is that anti-anthropomorphism has long been a key regulatory ideal of Western science in general. As historians of science such as Dustin and Mittman have shown, anti-anthropomorphism was a key tenet of 19th century Whiggish historiography of the rise of modern Western science. In this account, the ability to refrain from imputing human thoughts, emotions, and motivations to non-human entities is taken as a mark of both epistemic and ethical progress and superiority, which marks out scientists from their contemporaries, and on another scale, modern science, quote-quote, from primitive animism. You all know those kinds of 19th century evolutionary narratives. Nowhere has anti-anthropomorphism, as a regulatory ideal, played such a central and contested role than in the animal sciences. For instance, J.S. Kennedy claimed, as late as 1992, that to explain an animal's behavior by pointing to a purported aim or purpose is, quote, effectively a throwback to primitive animism. 1992. So you can see why, in the human-animal literature, this kind of position is really treated as an opponent and as an ideological opponent needs to be taken down. So you've got a very stark kind of opposition between people who critique animism and people who critique the people who critique animism. But somewhere in between there, what's lost is the sense of people who try 
and live some kind of anti-anthropomorphism in their practices. In some, the literature which characterizes Westerners as naturalists, that's the, my first bunch of literature, makes skepticism irrelevant because the ground of reality and the nature of relations between humans and non-humans is already known. There is nothing, in effect, to be skeptical about. By contrast, the literature which argues that we have never really been naturalists at all, that it's just an ideology, makes skepticism into a mendacious or irrelevant ideology which is undone by the evidence of substantive meaningful relations between humans and non-humans. So the fact that scientific skepticism finds itself out in the cold as an ethnographic subject is not therefore a coincidental oversight, I think, but rather a diagnostic feature of contemporary theoretical trends in the anthropology of non-human animals in its various forms. So what I propose to do here is to draw on a rather sort of seemingly tangential theoretical resource, which is at some removed from these discussions, in order to articulate the possibility of an ethnography of scientific skepticism. In a forthcoming article entitled, and I, this is the very, very end of the theory section. You've been very patient. <laughs> Thank you. In a forthcoming article entitled Cultures of Belief, Jonathan Mayer argues that anthropologists of religion <coughs> Anthropologists of religion have too readily given up on the category of belief in the wake of devastating critiques from Evans Pritchard all the way through to Rodney Needham and since. These critiques still echo in rejections of belief as a category as recent as those by Lindquist and Coleman in 2008, for instance. Granting that belief is a slippery and in many ways unpromising anthropological tool, Mayer nevertheless po points out that the people with whom anthropologists work are themselves often explicitly and actively engaged in, quote, understanding monitoring, debating, and cultivating particular forms of belief. The Inner Mongolian Buddhists with whom Mayer himself worked, for instance, are adamant that there are different types of belief and that certain kinds of belief need to be actively cultivated. Mayer proposes, I think quite rightly, that we should study these processes ethnographically and attend to people's own cultivation of particular orientations towards their own beliefs. Mayer's proposed anthropology of belief would involve, quote, both an ethnographic sensibility that allows for people's reflexive relationship to their own belief to register, and the comparative anthropology that helps us to understand it. Now, Mayer is, of course, making this argument in the context of the anthropology of religion, but for all the reasons I've just quoted before, you'll see why I think this is rather relevant to the case of the anthropology of science and of the anthropology of human-animal relations. <coughs> so it's precisely these forms of active orientation towards one's own beliefs which are the topic of this paper even though the present paper's contribution to the project of an anthropology of belief is somewhat paradoxical, since I will argue that what scientists are cultivating is precisely an active abstention from certain types of propositional belief. So the article is I'm going to look at two different sites in which this active suspension of belief, I will argue, takes place. And I will, um, I'll come back to this later on, but I'm drawing on Malcolm Rule's discussion of the distinction between propositional and relational belief and the way in which the two are intertwined in the history of Christianity. And I will come back to how that fits in this particular story, but that's just a little a preview of the deconstructed conclusion that's coming later on. So I'm going to follow Mayer's call to treat such cultures of belief, or in this case non-belief, comparatively, by contrasting the very different ways in which abstentionism... Oh. Sorry. <laughs> what I'm calling abstentionism is this abstention from certain kinds of propositional belief. Okay. So I'm going to contrast the different ways in which abstentionism plays out in the two ethnographic contexts that I'm examining here, which belong to two very distinct branches of the contemporary science of animal behavior. Most of the research is associated with the Kalahari Meerkat project, henceforth KMP, I'm going to call these guys the KMP people, are behavioral ecologists. Whereas researchers at the Comparative Cognition Lab, the people who work with the rooks and crows, and we call them the CCL people, are primarily 
pursuing questions at the interface of behavioral biology and comparative psychology. The former's aim, these guys, in the broadest terms, is to investigate the physiological causes and evolutionary functions of meerkat behavior. And the discipline stems from a theoretical tradition which leads back to mid-20th century European ethology via 1970s sociobiology. The latter, the crow people, investigate the cognitive abilities of corvids, members of the crow family, a question which has its roots in 20th century American animal psychology in its various behaviorist and cognitivist incarnations. Now, the practical setup of each site differs rather significantly. At the CCL, the COVID lab, the birds are hand-raised and they're kept in aviaries and cages. The research involves experiments in the forms of tests, puzzles, set up to assess the birds' abilities. And these often involve, actually, in a sense, habituating, habituating the birds to certain procedures and certain objects. If you like, from an external perspective, one might say training them. Although, as I'll say in a moment, they're very resistant to the word training, and you'll see why. Okay. Um, by contrast, the KMP is a field station set up to study large numbers of wild meerkats under conditions of habituation. The primary focus has historically been on tracing the life histories of known individuals and assessing the social structure of groups. In both sites, relationships between humans and animals are central to the conduct of the research, and in both cases, such relationships also have to be limited, managed, and controlled through particular ways of behaving, speaking, and indeed thinking, However, the relationships and the locus and types of detachment differ in each case, as does the relevance of the question of animal mind, intentionality, and interiority. So my first um, ethnographic foray, and it's a sort of, I mean, it might not feel like ethnography, because a lot of it is history of behavioral ecology, so we can figure it as theory as well, but from my perspective, it's ethnographic. Contemporary behavioral ecologists' avoidance of the problematic of mind has a long history. Under the guidance of its founders, Conrad Lawrence and Nico Timbergen, 20th century ethology was bent on establishing animal behavior as a bona fide object of biological science. As Eileen Christ has shown, one aspect of this project was crafting a technical language for describing animal behavior, which scrupulously avoided implications of intentionality, and thus isolated the biology of behavior from commonplace Euro-American descriptions of animals as minded subjects. However, Timbergen was very explicit that this, this exclusion of the question of animal experience, and this I'm quoting from Timbergen now, has nothing to do with whether I think animals experience something. I do think that, but it is, in my opinion, totally irrelevant. Experiences are not perceivable and thereby not usable in animal ethology. Thus, in principle at least, animal mind and perspective were not negated, but rather sidelined by ethology. In the place of explanations of animal actions in terms of intentions, Tim Bergen asked the ethologist to answer four different kinds of questions. What are the physiological causes of the behavior? What is its survival value? How historically did it evolve? And how does it develop during the lifetime of the animal? And the answers to these questions, as you, can, as you can make out, they're all answers on different levels. And none of them actually negates or goes against the answers that are in terms of what the animal thinks it's doing. They're simply different types of questions. The major shift in behavioral biology came in the 1970s with the increasing focus on evolutionary explanations of behavior, which Tim Bergen, the sort of Tim Bergen's survival value question, which became expanded to, to include the broader notion of reproductive fitness. And for external observers, this shift was most famously associated with E.O. Wilson's book, Sociobiology. Contemporary behavioral ecology, of the kind which is practiced at the Kalahari Meerkat Project, um, 
is the heir of 1970s sociobiology, but with some return to mechanism as well. So it's a slightly complex story, but it's kind of, it's partly mixing up these questions of evolutionary function with questions of how the behavior mechanistically actually comes about. I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that the problem of anthropomorphism has a really rather different resonance in this context than it has in the context of the crows I'll be talking about later. Here, the question of animal mind is excluded de facto. And in a sense, Accounts of animals as intentional actors are already shorthand for accounts of the selfish gene kind of explanation. So it's always so they will say things like, "Oh, uh, this is in the meerkat's interest," or you know, the meerkat, the dominant female suppresses the reproduction of the subordinates because it's good for the for the growth of her pups or something. But of course, none of them explicitly mean that she's doing this intentionally. So that there is a debate about anthropomorphism, but it's actually an anthropomorphism that bears on the question of whether you're taking your theories for facts. Because all of those intentional accounts of them are actually theoretical evolutionary accounts of what the animal is doing, rather than observed behaviors, in a sense. So it's a very different way of thinking about anthropomorphism. But I'll, I'll, I'll get some. I'll, I'll, yeah, I can get into some more of this detail in the questions if you're if you're interested. This is why the sidelining of mind is why the contemporary behavioral behavioral ecologists with whom I spoke were in the main not particularly sanguine about the question of intentionality and the rise of cognitive ethology. If animal subjective experience were made scientifically available, then that would become an interesting question, to be sure, but not one that could displace the ones of physiological causation or evolutionary function. These general disciplinary commitments are still in evidence at the Kalahari Mirka project, which was set up as a behavioral ecology web field site, website, no, field site in the early 90s. At the KMP, a team of 15 to 20 volunteers, most of them European university graduates in their early 20s, observe a population of around 200 meerkats, with one human following one group of meerkats every day. Volunteers engage in non-intrusive observational sampling of the meerkats' behavior, and also, three times a day, they weigh the meerkats by coaxing them onto electronic scales with bits of boiled egg. Not too much boiled egg, because they mustn't feed them, they must just attract them. Volunteers themselves characterize the former practice, the observation, as non-interactive, and indeed non-relational, whereas the latter practice, weights, taking weights, is inescapably for them relational and interactive, as indeed is the practice of habituation, by which wild groups are slowly coaxed into accepting the presence of humans in their midst. During waits, meerkats have to be convinced to climb onto the scales, or to stay away once they've been weighed and let others take their turn. And of course, meerkats don't do what you want. You have to keep kind of trying to attract this one and trying to slightly push this one away, but without touching it too much and stuff. And so I was talking to various volunteers, and and, you know, one of them was saying, well, you know, yeah, they're also living animals, they have feelings, so if you work with them like a machine or a robot, it wouldn't work. And Caroline says, yeah, yeah, you need to, you need to convince some of them that they please go in this weight box now, not in half an hour, <laughs> you know, it's the same with getting some of them out. And he says, I think they realize, you know, I think they feel that when you're trying to interact with them and you're positively, yeah, 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 they can definitely, I mean, if you're upset, or I don't know, if you're, like, if you're personally not happy when you go out in the field, your weight session never goes as well, because you have to be confident with them, you have to be in control. <coughs> And the ones that are difficult, you have to work them a bit more. You need that personal connection to each meerkat to know which one needs a bit more work. Okay. And of course, I should say, this is the kind of... Well, this is exactly what I'm going to talk about. This is the, kind, the way of talking about interactions with animals, which is actually kept very distinct from the way of talking about data. So during ad-lib, this is all during weights, but during ad-lib, data has to be insulated from this kind of intersubjectivity. So in answer to questions about the attribution of intention or subjective experience to meerkats, which clearly is going on in here, right, volunteers would often note that, yeah, that's fine, unless it affects the data. Now, the data primarily consisted, in this case, of predefined units of meerkat behavior. 
collected an input into a handheld computer. And these units of behavior, such as a pub feed or a dominance assertion or a predator alarm, etc., were understood to be objective patterns in the world whose description can be agreed upon by multiple observers independently of any question about what the animal may or may not have intended. So, for instance, uh, foraging competition is defined as an individual approaches a food item or whole owner minus, you know, to less than 50 centimeters, looking at it and either not foraging or scraping the ground while looking at the food owner and the defensive action is undertaken by the owner. Okay, so these are a set of things that you can tick off. And they don't involve you projecting yourself into what the animal is trying to do. This is an external description of animal actions, if you like, animal behavior. So, while they prided themselves on their ability to interact successfully with the meerkats, as we saw in the previous, in the previous discussion, and in, you know, they did this in ways which involved implicit mind reading, the volunteers will also distinguish such moments of interaction from the business of behavioral data collection, when, as one volunteer put it, you're there doing science and watching them and questioning what they're doing in a scientific way. So you're doing this kind of stuff. At other times, however, the distinction between scientific and non-scientific ways was drawn not so much between weights and ad-lib, but rather within ad-lib itself. So, um, for instance, they would say that of course, you know these behaviors by the definitions, but then you also learn to recognize them, and then you learn to recognize the individuals. And so you can kind of tell to one and say, well, if it's you, it's going to be a foraging competition because you're always doing it, right? So you, you get to know the individuals, and that sort of knowledge feeds into your data gathering. But then again, there's some, there's some cases where, is this one of them? No. There's some cases where actually this distinction between the behavioral description and the intentional reading is not quite so straightforward. So... Um, there's one particular case, which is the dominance assertion. I'm sorry, I'm going into detail, but it's actually quite a, quite a meaningful example, this one. So the dominance assertion is defined in the following way in the, in the handbook. It's expressed in a number of ways, from glares to vigorous attacks, approach, when the meerkat marches purposefully towards a subordinate while staring at it hard, glare, crouches down low and fixes subordinate with an unwavering stare, charge, runs directly at the subordinate. By contrast, submission, so this is dominance, submission, which is a different key on the, on the keyboard, covers behaviors such as groveling when they're initiated by the subordinate animal. But then in practice, what usually happens with meerkats is one of them does dominance, the other one does submission. So the dominance assertions are often very subtle. And in the case of things like a purposeful march or an unwavering stare, that actually relies on an implicit attribution of purpose or intent. So one volunteer explained the resulting difficulties. Well, is the dominant approaching because she's asserting or is she approaching because she just wants to walk in that direction? I think in that sense you have to look at intention, and it's a bit of cognition of that, but otherwise most of it's quite straightforward. So the point of bringing up this example is to say that, of course these distinctions are not perfect, but the people working there recognize them as things that you have to keep trying to purify in various ways and to sort of clean up. In other words, whereas the complete exclusion of any attributions of intentionality from behavioral data gathering was perhaps ultimately impossible, all sorts of mechanisms were in place to bring such an exclusion about as much as possible. At the most general level, intersubjective moments of weighing were cordoned off from what I've elsewhere called interpatient moments of ad lib. More finally, personal knowledge of individuals in the field was separated out from the data management back of the computer. And more finally still, the need to resort to mind reading in identifications of particular units of behavior was identified as a problem and kept to an absolute minimum. Separating data from intention was not a sharp, clear-cut process like carving reality out of joints. Rather, it was a painstaking work of increasingly fine filtering, more like skimming a stock. The result could never be perfect, but the procedures made a significant difference. Okay, so slightly more briefly, at the comparative, the comparative cognition lab, behavioral ecology is not, however, the whole of the science of animal behavior. Comparative psychology wants a distinct and even in some respects antagonistic endeavor 
has since the 1960s come increasingly into close communication with behavioral ecology. Um, however, while behavioral ecologists still tend to feel that they can give the question of mind a fairly wide berth, the study of comparative cognition engages directly in attempts to provide scientific answers to that question. A particularly, central, a particularly central line of debate in the field of animal cognition, in which the CCL was a prominent participant, centers on the possibility of establishing that specific species have particular cognitive abilities. Um, so, for instance, the, this lab is very famous for having shown that uh, corvids, according to most most of the reviews, having shown that corvids have mental time travel, i.e. that they can remember specific events in the past and they can project themselves into particular moments in the future. That's what I mean by particular cognitive abilities. Critics in the field tend to try to reply to such arguments by showing how specific abilities could actually be redescribed as the effect of a series of computational responses to stimuli. So you can do a behavioristic story and therefore... And if you want an ongoing dispute in the case of chimpanzees and theory of mind, there's sort of an ongoing one there between Tomazello on the one hand and Povinelli on the other, etc. But the, so, I, as I said, the group here were particularly working on mental time travel and COVIDs, but they've also produced papers concerning other abilities such as cooperative problem solving or physical cognition. So, do they understand that if you drop stones in a little thing with water here, the water is going to rise on the other side? So, it's against this background of con controversy, if you like, that Alice, a first year PhD student at the lab, characterized one key contrast in the field in the following terms. She said, Sorry. Simplistically, it's between believers and non-believers. It's people who believe that animals have all these cognitive abilities, like theory of mind or episodic memory, and people who do not. Or, and then she stopped and said, or people who believe that it is parsimonious to accept certain explanations given the data, and people who believe that it's not. Now, both the initial formulation and the reformulation, I think, are rather telling. Alice's first formulation um, involves a substantive commitment about the fact of the matter of animal mind. Some scientists believe that animals have this stuff, some scientists believe that they don't. And this is very much the way in which these kinds of arguments are reported in the press and sometimes had polemically over coffee, etc. But in a more formal sense, underneath that, underneath that general way of talking about it, there's an underlying abstention behind this talk of belief and unbelief. So as she said, it's actually people who believe that the data sort of points in that direction properly and people who believe that it doesn't. So cognitive abilities, she thought, could probably never be established beyond all possible doubt. The most one could ever do was to relentlessly test the abilities in question through, and I'm quoting her again, endless, endless, endless experiments showing that no matter what you manipulate and no matter in what context, the animal can still do the appropriate thing. So every time, if you like, the behaviorist comes back and says, no, 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 but if you change, you know, they just learn how to do this. And you say, well, look, but they can do it here as well. And they say, yeah, yeah, but they learn two things. They go, yeah, but they can do this as well. So you can't, at no point can you just say, yeah, well, I believe they can do it, or I know they can do it. You have to keep trying to test that in those ways. So to believe in COVID cognitive abilities in the sense described above is to trust the accumulated evidence of repeated experiments and ultimately the authority of peers in the scientific community who had produced these experiments. It did not involve an intersubjective leap of faith between an individual human and an individual animal. Or rather, as we shall see, it involved the ability to objectify such intersubject insights. So Alice was adamant that as a scientist, she had to be able to be a sort of, some sort of skeptic, even procedurally. So she said the CCL is broadly speaking a lab of believers, as it were, but the key to their success and to the validity of their work is that they acted as non-believers. And she says, quote, it's a very standard scientific point. If you truly want to show that something is there, the way of doing that is to do your experiment as if you're trying to give every opportunity for it to show that it isn't there. There's lots of you know, writing on falsification isn't the right first. 
Unlike the KMP volunteers, researchers at the CCL did not live together and mostly worked on independent projects. They thus differed in the extent and type of their relations to the animals that they worked with far more than the KMP researchers. Thus Alice, who claimed jokingly that she thought of her birds as a cross between pets and colleagues, would argue with John, an older postdoc, who claimed that his birds were not particularly tame and that this was very convenient for his purposes. John would pick Alice up for using anthropomorphic language in describing her bird's behavior when off-duty. So when we were, on, we were having coffee and she, and she said, oh, well, he, no, this bird, he really hates me. And I was like, how can you say he hates you? You don't know. And, say, eh. and she would retort that you can't just always speak scientifically all the time. And she, in fact, she criticized him, she criticized him for bringing science in. He brings science into everything. Right, so trying to be strictly adherent to those kinds of scientific ways of talking when you're off-duty as well as on-duty just makes conversation impossible. But these kinds of disagreements actually testify, I think, to a broader agreement about the existence of a distinction between the scientific and the non-scientific way of thinking and talking about the birds. This also related to a broader procedural set of understandings. However they might speak in private to each other, or indeed to me, the researchers of the CCL were committed to investigating the fact of the matter about their birds' cognitive abilities or lack of them. And this in turn committed them to painstaking procedures of control. These procedures of control were just as stringent as the ones that were in place at the KMP, but they differed in scale and focus. So at the KMP, a lot of the control was about not overfeeding the animals, not, in, not getting in the way of them being eaten by other animals, for instance. So it was sort of a rather large-scale set of issues. These kinds of interferences were necessary and unproblematic at the CCL, because you raise the birds from, you know, you, you, yeah, you raise them. So of course you're going to feed them and you're going to make sure they don't get eaten by anything else. Um, the concerns with interference here were related principally to a much more fine-grained locus, which was effectively the animals' minds themselves. So corvids, like most birds, are very often wary of new objects and situations. That, that they refer to it as neophobia. And so in order to get them to participate in an experiment, you have to first of all expose them to the objects that you want, to, you want them to use. And that can take days and days and days of showing them the thing, bringing them to the cage, putting a little, thing, a little bit of food on the, on the object, and then they sort of don't approach it. And it can take a very, very long time. And so to return, but of course, to return to, 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 to Alice, she described the subtle balance that you had to, to strike between doing that and actually training them to do what you want them to do, which of course is not what you should be doing. So she says, there's always this balance between getting them used to all the things they need to do without giving them prior experience that would, you know, make your experiment pointless, but also without giving them the kind of training that means that they never think again sort of thing. They end up just doing everything automatically says, and I had a problem with my first experiment. I overtrained them, as it turned out. When I did all the transfer experiments, now, I'm not saying it's necessarily because I overtrained them. It might be because they're stupid, right? But they failed all the transfer experiments. They'd learned the results. They'd learned how to do them, but they didn't know how to do them. They just weren't thinking at all anymore. So here again, you, see, you find this sort of talk about intention, thought, process, etc., which fits in which is again separated out from what counts as data, what counts as objective results, etc., etc., but it's separated out in a slightly different way. What this quote highlights firstly is that intentions and motivations are crucial to the research in a way in which they're not, they aren't really at the KMP. It doesn't really matter what the animal intended at the KMP, in theory. Here, intention is, distinct, intention is precisely what distinguishes a true from a false positive. Right? So if it did the thing but did it for the wrong reasons, then it doesn't count. Conversely, a lack of intention, as I was saying, could produce a false negative. So Alice thought, for instance, that she could tell with one bird that she knew very well when he failed an experiment simply because he wasn't trying hard enough. I really like this quote. She says, sometimes the trial is over in 30 seconds because he comes charging up, does whatever's in front of him, and then leaves again. And those are the trials that he fails. And so that frustrates me. He's a good bird who's being shit. 
Whether or not he understands, you know, I can't say, I think he was impulsive on this trial, but not on that trial. There's no way of me objectifying that. But sometimes it just looks like he's not thought it through. And that's probably because the experiments that I've given him have a very low cost for error. And that final point, I think, is really interesting. Because the way what she translates this into is, how did I set up this situation? I set up this situation in such a way that it doesn't cost him anything to just fly in, get the stuff, and fly away again. How can I set it up the next time so that it really tests whether he can do this thing. You know, if he really, you know, if he really needs to work for that, whatever it is that he's being fed, for that worm or something, then I can actually see if he's able to do it or not. So the point that I'm, I'm making in, for, for this context is that intuitions about what a bird might really be thinking, or you know, whether he's being lazy, or whether he really doesn't understand, or whatever, this matters very much to the work that's done in the lab, but in order to count, such intuitions then have to be objectified through experimental designs which allows the distinction to be made between valid results and false positives and false negatives. Therein lies the difficulty and the skill. A poorly designed apparatus might not give the bird enough incentive to prove itself, or it might actually make the bird stupid, making them never think again, as she said. A positive result is valuable, however, only if it can be distinguished categorically from a false positive. So the point is not <clears throat> to make the birds cleverer than they were to begin with. Okay, so just to sort of round up these two, these two cases a bit, and come to my tentative conclusion. Engaged intersubjectivity and detached suspension of belief were thus present in both of these scientific settings. In both settings, researchers resorted to implicit, or indeed explicit, mind-reading, while setting this apart from what counted as scientific knowledge, or more precisely, from the belief that a particular proposition reflected the current most valid hypothesis about a state of fact. Now, this brings to mind Paul Vane's point about different forms of belief, which is also rather foundational to um, Jonathan Mayer's argument, which I started at the beginning of the paper. So what Paul Vane points out, this is in, the, in his book, Did the Greeks Believe in Their Gods? He says, yes, of course the Greeks believed in their gods, and they believe that their gods existed, etc., but at the same time, any, any ancient Greek would have been very surprised if you'd said to him, oh, by the way, you know that uh, you know, Zeus got a divorce, and then he, sort of, he just bought a car, and he, right? There's, well, well, they'd be very surprised by the car thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, no, he just got a divorce, and then he got married again to someone else. <coughs> okay. And the point that Vane is making is that you can believe something in one regime and also consider it to not, to not make sense in another regime. So there's different ways, and then he, sort of, he talks about different temporalities of belief, etc., but... Paul Vane's point is that there's different sort of regimes of belief that people deploy, and Vane argues that most of the time people are just passively unaware of the fact that they switch between these different regimes of belief. So you don't believe in the existence of gods in the same way that you believe in the fact that your neighbor got remarried. Similarly, there's different forms of belief at play in this case. So the way that one believes that a meerkat wants something, or that a meerkat is a, you know, it's an animal as well, and it can, I, I'm sure it, can, it knows what I think, or that this bird is, doesn't like me, or that this bird was being lazy, or etc. The way that one believes that is a different kind of belief in the way one believes in scientific propositions about animal minds. So there's a sort of switch that has to be done there. And I think we can specify this switch slightly further by reference, as I was saying at the very beginning, to Malcolm Rawls' foundational essay, Christians as Believers. Rawls shows the co-implication of propositional belief and trust in the history of Christianity. With the apostolic writings of the New Testament, Rawls argues that the meaning of the term pistia, belief, changes. And here I'm quoting from Rawls. Christian belief begins to part company from Hebrew trust. 
both refer to a relationship, the confidence that people have in God, but for the Christians, there is added confidence or conviction about an event, the resurrection, and all that it signifies. A distinction made frequently today is between belief in, trust in, and belief that, propositional belief. So one might say relational belief, if you like, trust and propositional belief. This distinction, and I'm, I'm still quoting from Rule now, this distinction may clear our minds today, but it confuses history, for the point about Christian belief is that it was both at once. And it's worth pointing out that Rule is often mis or misremembered or misquoted as saying, as being the person who's distinguished propositional belief from, from trust. Actually, what he's arguing is the opposite, that in, in the history of Christianity, these two things were interwoven in complex ways. But what I'm arguing is about a distinction. So, Rawls' characterization of the double nature of Christian belief as simultaneously, or inter, sort of intertwinedly, if you like, relational and propositional, gives a clear counterpoint to what the scientists in both of these contexts were attempting, namely, to detach the question of propositional belief, belief that non-human human animals are minded, have certain abilities, etc., from the practice of relational trust, belief in non-human animals as intersubjective partners. And it is this particular attitude of <coughs> detaching propositional belief from <coughs> relational trust that I would like to characterize as abstentionism. Now, abstentionism emerges in rather different ways in these two contexts, even though I think it emerges in both cases. So, and this is where I think, you know, the, the comparison, I mean, this is, this is where the conclusion could go in all sorts of different ways. But... A number of comparisons, I think, I think, emerge. For instance, I think that the KMP is a far more institutionalized abstentionism than the CCL. So a lot of their, a lot of the sidelining of mind is actually built into the theoretical tradition that they're working in, the conceptual tools that they're using, etc., etc. And I think that that precisely makes it much easier for the people working there, at least for some of the people working there who are very hands-on with the animals, to just think of those two things as very separate. So yes, I can say these animals have got minds and you know they interact with me, whatever. And that's straightforwardly separate from talking about data. I think in the sense that, if you like, the burden of that separation is carried much more collectively there, rather than in the CCL, where it's carried very much by individuals who have to design particular experiments to distinguish between particular kinds of, between, the, if you like, their trust and their relationship with the animal and their beliefs about certain, certain aspects of what the animal is able to do and not. Um, I think what this also does is that it creates a very different dynamic for trying to convert and not convert between these different kinds of beliefs. So, in the, again, in the KMP, you could very, fairly unproblematically say, on the one hand, yeah, I, I get on with the animals really well, and also I'm very scientific when I look at them, put my scientist hat on when I look at them. Whereas um, researchers at the, at, the, at the COVID lab were often saying that they were, in a sense, rather frustrated by the fact that they couldn't translate what were their direct intuitions about what the animals could and couldn't do into the scientific language that they were, they were having to work with. So, for instance, how do you, you know, if you've got a very small sample of birds and half of them are just really scared of anything in the cage, that always looks as if your experiments aren't going very well. But if you could only explain in, some, in a kind of scientific, formal way that they're just scared or they're just lazy, then suddenly things would be much better, right? So there's a real frustration there about how you translate one into the other, which, again, doesn't operate at the Kalahari Mirka place. So there are just a couple of things, I think, that you can start to pick out once you look at the way people actively engage with their own belief practices. There's, of course, much more to be made of these contrasts and comparisons, but I hope to have said enough at least to begin to refine the broad brush image of Western Cartesian science of animals, which is sometimes still invoked, at least in anthropological accounts of elsewhere, by contrast. 
In neither case were these researchers operating under the illusion that animals are mere objects or automata, and in both contexts, embodied knowledge and skills enabled careful and indeed caring relations to obtain between researchers and their animals. However, I think I've also shown that at the heart of these relations lay a fundamental abstention concerning the factual matter of animal mind in its various embodiments. The abstention played out in different ways, depending particularly on whether the question of mind was itself part of the research or not, right? I mean, that's the main distinction between the two places. However, even when the researchers were actually committed to demonstrating the existence of animal mind, they remained simultaneously committed to doing so without first assuming it to be there. And that's, if you like, my, my comment for the anthropology of ontology and of you know, what we're like versus what they're like. And my comment for the anthropology on human-animal relations and the anthropology of science is that what I've just described here, there's a real question that this raises. Is abstentionism possible? So I think it's arguably not, if by that we mean a stable achievement. So at the KMP, we've seen that intention filters back into the data. At the CCL, in the detail of the way Alice speaks, agnosticism often slips into affirmation or denial of animal mind, and then she catches herself and reformulates. These observations, therefore, seem to rejoin the very broad commonplace in recent writings on science, in anthropology and beyond, that explicit pronouncements about methodological purity are undercut by the more ambivalent or hybrid practices and accommodations. So, in other words, that scientists have never been more than any more than anyone else. But such a deflationary conclusion is not at all the one I would like to end on. The idea that, you know, they say they think that they abstain, but really they don't. That would miss something crucial about the way these practices and commitments actually operate. What is left out, and I think what is left out in a lot of, I guess, post-Latorian uh, you know, STS and in some anthropology of science as well, is the sense that failures are not in themselves proof that an exercise is either futile or insincere. It's a sort of sense of, if you like, the, the transcendent that guides imminent practice. So a lot, of this, a lot of the STS approach is about getting just back down to the imminent and forgetting all this transcendent stuff as being just, you know, well, we've never really done that. But I think what we can get from the anthropology of ethics and the anthropology of belief, by contrast, is the sense that it's precisely in following the imminent, the, sorry, the transcendent in various ways that imminent practice is shaped and gets meaning. So to quote Joanna Cook um, <clears throat> in a reconsideration of the place of doubt in ethnographic fieldwork and in Thai Buddhist monasticism, quote, she says, a gap between hope intention, hope slash intention and reality does not necessarily suggest a deviation from the religious system or a dysfunction of social organization. It is in that dynamic tension between precept and practice that asceticism is really lived. So, I, in a sense, I've been looking at these kinds of, of, of skepticisms as forms of scientific asceticism, which I think are really meaningfully there. They're not things that are either, uh, they're not things that are either easy to do or things that are either just ideological. <clears throat> then again, nothing that I've written contradicts what Eduardo Cohn said when he says our lives depend on our ability to believe in and act on the provisional guesses we make about the motivations of ourselves. It simply adds that the specific practice of being a scientist, or indeed a Buddhist monastic, or a Corsican school teacher, or for that matter an anthropologist, requires a certain cultivated detachment from the immediacy of just being alive. In this respect, Western scientists might not be so different from the animists, after all, if we follow recent reconsiderations of animism as simultaneously engaged and detached relation to non-human animals. Thank you.